Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Competitive Enablement Show on the Compete Network. I'm your host, Adam McQueen, and we've been off for two weeks working on Compete Week 2022, but we are back to our regular scheduled programming and we're closing out the year with one heck of an episode. Our guest today is Brian Murray, the partner and COO at Craft Ventures, a VC firm that's raised more than $2 billion and a portfolio that includes names like Airbnb, Lyft, and of course, our personal favorite, Clue. He sat down with us to answer five questions about how he's reading the market and how companies are competing within this market amid uncertainty. Brian weighs in on the importance of businesses to have a handle on their competitive landscape, why it frustrates him as an investor when he sits in board meetings and business executives aren't able to speak directly or informatively about their competitors or landscape, and instead they pretend that they just don't exist, and why businesses need to focus more on who they're selling to as opposed to what they're selling in order to win. We also get through a lightning round that was actually a short lightning round for the first time ever, which is a testament to Brian as a podcast guest and not myself as a host. Brian has such a valuable and unique perspective that we've never had on the show before on the market and how to compete. So I was thrilled to really just learn from him. I know you're going to learn something as well. Before we get into the episode, I just want to say a sincere thank you for everyone who attended or participated in Compete Week last week. The attendees, the speakers, everyone behind the scenes made it such an amazing event. And again, I'm just blown away by how great this Compete community truly is and how much it's growing. If you didn't register, we'll make sure that you can get your eyes on this content as well in the very near future. With that all said, let's get into today's episode. All right, today I'm joined by Brian Murray, partner and chief operating officer at Craft Ventures. Craft Ventures has raised over $2 billion since 2017 and counts more than 100 companies as part of their portfolio, including ClickUp, Hootsuite, and of course, Clue. Brian's been with Kraft since the very beginning and leads the investment team. And before that, Brian has leadership roles in B2B SaaS startups like Yammer and Zenefits. He's also the co-founder of Cabal, a company that helps connect founders with their investors and advisors in a private workspace. He's been gracious enough to give us some time on the Competitive Enablement Show today. Brian, welcome and thank you for coming on the show. Awesome to be here, Adam. Thank you for having me. Love this topic. So excited to dig, dig in. Absolutely. And honestly, as someone whose entire job is to understand the market, read the tea leaves on where it's going, and as someone who also has this bird's eye view into how hundreds of different companies are competing successfully and also unsuccessfully, I want to get your take on a few things. We have five questions, rapid fire hit. So first of all, can you share what competing for business looks like in an economic downturn compared to what we'd see in this bull market in years past? Yeah. So I think the best way to think about a question like this is from the perspective of the buyer. And um, everybody, every one of us who's selling technology, we're also often buying technology. And so just think about how you yourself buy new technology or renew existing technology and sort of imagine conditions where you your budget is constrained. What do you do differently? Well, number one, you think real hard about your current tech stack and what's needed and what's adding value and what's not. 
And then for any new technology, you have, there's just more discipline around creating an ROI argument. So is this thing, am I going to pay dollars for this thing? And is it going to help me generate more dollars, either directly or indirectly? And um, I think what happened in the last few years is just there was so much money in the ecosystem that people were not as discerning with those decisions. And so it felt easier to sell anything. Um, so basically, the bar is higher. It, it means sales teams are going to have to be sharper with their pitch, with their presentation of value, with their proof of value, and uh, and also just being very understanding of um, of your buyer and what they're going through because uh, it's a different it's a different atmosphere. So, I mean, there's so much that's changing all at the same time. But I think those are the the critical points. And and again, I would just encourage everyone to put yourselves in the buyer's shoe in your own sales cycle. And it'll help you kind of think through what the appropriate approach is. I love that we're, we're already getting into the tactical here of what sellers can do in the field because they're, they're feeling the brunt of it right now for sure. I also want to get your take from that like broader perspective. When the proverbial pie shrinks, like what are some of the volatile moments you've seen companies do and their competitors do? So it depends on the health of the company. Like, let's just take the vendor's perspective. So if, and everybody is competing. So it is super important now more than ever to understand your competitive landscape. Because you could have some, you can have, your competitors can do some crazy stuff in these moments. For instance, they might be running out of cash and they might have a hard time raising more money. And they might be more motivated than ever to slash their prices just to try and do a mad scramble to collect dollars to fund the business that I've seen that firsthand happen in certain markets. Basically it's just harder to fundraise. So it's harder to get those VC dollars to keep your business going. So, you know, you drop a few, a few dominoes fall and all of a sudden you get this erratic behavior from um, industry participants. Now what, what's like the guidance. Number one, if you find yourselves in those shoes, that might be your only option. You might need to make some drastic measures like that. But if you find you, if you find yourself competing in a market where that is happening, rather than try to stoop to that level where you are slashing your own prices just to stay ahead, you might just take a pause and think critically about what's going on in this market and also lean into your own competitive intelligence to figure out like, what does this mean about our com- our competitor? Are they struggling? Maybe this is the time to approach them about acquiring them. You know, there's a lot of like things that you could do rather than the obvious gut reaction of copying them on price cutting. It's so true, but it's also, I think, easier said than done. I think there's that need, to, you said that, like there's this gut reaction, knee-jerk reaction, competitor X, especially when we're talking about deals happening right now and like every deal starts to feel more and more critical in this environment. And you see competitor Y over there on that first call, boom, undercut their price by 50% to try and get that, get that prospect, get that opportunity, get that customer in the door. How have you seen companies resist the urge to stoop, as you say? Um, well, I should be, before I answer that question, let's also explore the other side of the coin, which is in the, in the price cutting scenario, usually that's the, um, the smaller company that's trying to do that in a moment of desperation. But actually another thing that could happen is the bigger company can increase prices. So I'll give you an example. A lot of these publicly traded companies who have huge customer bases that for them, the small company, the small customers of theirs 
it's almost like the economics of those deals, even if they're six figure deals to them, maybe they're too small. It's like not worth it for them. So they're going to, they're going to try and expand their accounts and, and push for upsells. So, so basically you have in this more volatile market, you can have both effects, people slashing prices to try and like sweep in new customers and then people increasing prices to try and prop up their install base and, and generate more cash out of their customers. And so your job in, in navigating the waters of your industry is A, to be aware of what your competitors are doing and why they're doing it. And then B, work as an executive team and in the entire company should be on the same page with what's going on in this market and what is our strategic response to what we're seeing. Um, maybe it is to cut prices. Maybe it is to increase prices. It just, it all depends on your specific situation. So um, not to like plug clue too much, but I think it really does all come back to step one is having the market intelligence of what is going on and why are people doing the things they're doing. And then number two is working together as a team to figure out what the most appropriate reaction is to, to uh, the current environment. So proactively understanding the landscape so you're not feeling like reactionary to competitors upselling underselling any of the volatile movements that may or may not happen and that's interesting you mentioned this like second point of alignment that's what my next question was kind of on is where have you seen winning companies what have you seen them do specifically to get this alignment and to succeed and stand out when a lot of tech companies specifically are in these highly saturated markets and it's tougher to sell right now so what are they doing to create that alignment and then stand out in the eye of their buy? It kind of, well, there is no starting point to the strategy, but I'll just pick a starting point to make it easier to explain. But let's say you have your board meeting and in the board meeting, you're reflecting on how the last quarter went, how your revenues were, how your retention was, what the new product developments were, and importantly, what your competitive, what the competitive landscape looks like and what people are doing. So in that meeting, Number one, you should definitely be discussing the competitive landscape. And number two, you can it's a moment of reflection where you can see here's how we're performing, here's our pipeline, here's what our competitors are doing, and therefore let's align on a strategic approach to this market. So coming out of that meeting, what should happen is that alignment should cascade down through the ranks. So it should go from the C-levels down to the VPs, directors, and uh, ICs. And, and basically the whole company should be on the same page with whatever it is um, the company chooses to do. Now, that could be uncomfortable for some groups and more comfortable for others or vice versa. But I think this is where culture shines. Like if you've got a culture of um, a team-oriented culture where everyone is excited to be a part of it and um, is rowing in the same direction, sometimes one team like product is going to be carrying extra load and stress. Sometimes another group like sales will be carrying the load. But the point is that um, everybody's working together. So anyway, that, I started by saying, like, where's the starting point? And I sort of alluded it to being the boardroom, which sounds kind of like ivory tower pretentious. That's not the starting point. The starting point is really the market signals. Like, how do we even know what is happening in our market? And that's often with the, um, the go-to-market team or the CSMs or whatever. They're the ones getting that information in the moment. How is that being fed back up to the company, discussed, synthesized, et cetera? I do want to, I, I like you mentioned in that, the, the ivory tower of executive, the boardroom, but I do want to like double click into that a little bit because obviously you've sat in on a lot of board meetings, right? 
and you mentioned there's these you're talking about your like new um net new revenue your your retention numbers but then you also mentioned competitors like in your experience in these board meetings do competitors come up how frequently do competitors come up uh not enough i think they should be coming up in every single board meeting in my view the key elements of a good board meeting are kind of the vitals so the health of the business which is, I'll just simplify it for a, a SaaS business because different business models, you look at different things, but you'd want to see like, um, how much did we grow ARR in the last quarter? How much did we spend to grow that ARR? How much um, revenue did we retain from our customers that were up for a renewal? And then you want to look at what were the, um, what's the pipeline look like in the forecast, of course. So that's sort of on the go-to-market side. And then on the R&D side, it's the same thing. You look at what you accomplished in the last quarter and then what you plan to accomplish in the next quarter. You know, ideally, this is a discussion. It's not so much a, just a report out, but the board should be d- double-clicking into certain things that don't make sense or objecting to things. So the more engagement there is, the better. And then overlaid on all of this is what is the market that we're operating in? And so the market has a few facets to it. Competitors is one thing. Market size is another thing. So for instance, you might be on the product roadmap, you might intentionally be building a new product because it's going to expand the market in some way. It's going to unlock some new market to go after. But again, back to the competition side, that should 100% be a, a big part of every board discussion because you need to know how how the field is, um, you know, what, what is the game on the field? What are people doing and what are we doing in relation to what other people are doing? You know, as soon as I asked that question, you almost immediately replied, they don't talk about competitors enough at the board level meeting. I want to see it more. Can you tell me, and I don't want you to name names, but is there an example of when you've sat in that board meeting and there's been that glaring omission that Brian's thinking about, like, where's the competitive landscape? Where, Why is that not being addressed? Like, how does that... How does that look compared to a board meeting where someone's come to the table, the companies come to the table and they're like, this is what the market's doing. This is what our primary competitors are doing. Can you, can you tell me some of the differences that you've, when you've sat through those board meetings? Yeah. So I would say the people who are including it, um, the C-level teams that are including competitive analysis are the paranoid, diligent variety. And Paranoid sounds like a bad word, but actually it's a very important attribute to successful leaders. I mean, there's that trope that only the paranoid survive. So now then I will hear from certain leadership teams who will say things like, oh, we're not focused on our competition. We're just focused on being successful and and, um, delivering value to our customers. Like that sounds good, but I actually think that's kind of a stalking horse for like, we were too lazy to to do it. (laughs) Or like we we're too cocky that we think, you know, nobody can catch up with us. But the reality is that's never true. And it's always important to know what your competitors are doing. And it's worth the effort because it could really inform how you price, how you position yourself, how you um, upsell, how you uh, like what products you're keeping, what products you're calling, what you, if, if you're at scale, if you should be acquisitive or if you should be divesting. A lot of very, very high leverage things can be discussed in the context of competitive landscape. And by the way, another thing in this crazy market is there's gonna, well, going to be a lot of startup mortality. A lot of startups are going to die. They're just not going to, they're going to run out of money. There's not going to be another VC to fund them. And it's going to be sad. 
But in a lot of cases, those teams created some valuable technology. So if you're at semi-scale, and I don't mean like big scale, I mean like Series B plus, and you've got a good treasury, like you've got a lot of cash on hand, you have a lot of runway, acquisitions might be a very smart strategy for you to consider. And how do you know what to acquire? Well, you got to know what your competitive landscape is. So there's like a good example of why it really matters. That's super interesting. Not necessarily scaling back across all fronts. And also, yeah, I think you mentioned there, like the runway is shortening for a lot of these earlier startups, that startup mortality. And it's really an opportunity from the acquisition side. But obviously you need context and that context comes in the form of understanding your market. I want to get into, because you kicked off the first question, you went really tactical, which is what we love here on this show. But I want to go back to that. You mentioned kind of scrapping over fewer dollars and that sellers really need to be dialed in, essentially. I think we had Chris Harper's and the CEO at Dooley the other week with Jason, our own CEO, and he mentioned, what was his basketball analogy? is like, before sellers were just, they had layups under the basket, and now you got to be a bit more specialized. What, what, from what you've seen, and specifically with these neck and neck deals, the more competitive, how are businesses and specifically sellers, how are they able to cut through the noise right now and provide value to a buyer and differentiate from the alternatives that are out there? Number one is I think in general, we obsess too much about the what that we're selling, and we should be obsessing more about the who is involved in the sale. So generally speaking, the structure of a sale is that you have a champion, you have like a few users who are kind of interested, and then you have some decision makers or a committee of decision makers. And the thing that matters most is your relationship with the champion. And the reason why that matters most is because they are the ones who are parroting your value prop internally. They're the ones explaining what whatever it is you do to everybody else in the company, you uh, as the outside vendor are always going to be at a disadvantage in terms of having an open mind with the people you're talking to, right? Because everyone's going to be guarded when they're talking to you because they know you're trying to sell them something. But your champion, if you can create like a bridge of trust where they really trust you and they almost think of you as a friend more than they do as a vendor, then um, number one, they will be more motivated and empowered to help you um, sell. And number two, they're going to inoculate you from competition because if, you know, they're going to feel like they're cheating on you. <laughs> they're cheating on you if they're, if they're doing the same thing with your competitors, if you've done your job right. And if you've built a lot of rapport. And again, I would, I would encourage people to go back to put yourself in the buyer's shoes. What do you want? You want authentic relationships with vendors. You don't want to be oversold. You don't want to be hassled. And a lot of sellers just shoot themselves in the foot by being annoying or being um, not listening or going around their champion to the decision maker to try and uh, expedite the deal. There's all these unforced errors that sellers do. And the key is just create a good relationship. Again, focus, I would say, spend more energy talking about the potential and the vision and the mission of your company rather than like the actual nuts and bolts of the product and what it does the like the buttons and the clicking and the tables and whatever in your product those are not inspiring what's inspiring is the bigger picture like why is it that the founder started this company in the first place and how's that how does that align to your job at you know whatever your job is um so 
this this hash of that the tldr is um play more into the emotional side of sales than into the um into the sort of mechanical side of here's what the product does and here's our pricing and will you buy we'll be right back after a word from the compete network Hey everyone, I'm Jason Oakley, co-host of Compared to What, a show where my friend Federico and I dive deep into the all-important tool in a product marketer's toolkit, the comparison page. We guide you through real-life examples from brands like Shopify and BigCommerce, Chromecast and Airtable, Asana, ClickUp, and more, taking a look at the good, the bad, and sometimes the ugly along the way. So come watch Federico and myself on season one of Compared to What, only on the Compete Network. All right, back to the show. Um, another consistent theme, and I think, again, you mentioned this off the top here, is that in buying decisions and in business decisions right now as well, there's a lot of discussion around ROI and for very, very good reason. But also to flip that, what are you potentially leaving on the table by not being on top of changes within your market, how your competitors are operating in the field on a day-to-day basis and how that's changing so quickly? It's a great question, and there's kind of a a, a funny irony in, embedded into the answer, which is a lot of us, many of us work in technology companies, and why do tech, technology companies exist? Why does the tech sector in the first place exist? Well, it's because technology can create um, efficiencies. Literally, products, these tech products, they can compress time by creating automations of various kinds. Every single piece of technology that's valuable is doing that same thing. They're creating efficiencies. So what does an efficiency mean? It means you're able to do more with less. It's sort of like the technology is doing the job of a person and the technology costs one-tenth of what a person would cost to do that same job. So what does that mean? Well, if you are not aware of what's out there, like if you're not aware of what people have invented to make certain things more efficient, you might be spending way more money than you should be to complete a certain job. This is like this is most obviously true in certain um, like we just backed a company called Anvil. It's a PDF automation platform. So they help companies take PDF workflows where people are submitting information and transposing it on PDFs and then sending it somewhere. They automate those workflows. So if you're taking something that takes like five man hours per PDF and now it takes five seconds per PDF, it's pretty easy to quantify how much you would be saving by shifting over to using, using a technology vendor. So anyway, that's kind of like the, the irony is all these technologists are sort of like, they're like skeptical of new technology, but that's the whole point of this industry is that we invent code that does the job that other people do in a fraction of the time at a fraction of the cost. Competitive enablement is actually a good example, right? Like, how does that, this is why we backed Clue is because I literally had the job of doing the competitive intelligence for a few different startups when I was working in startups. And what would I do? I would spend a lot of time making calls, Googling, trying to find information out from the sellers, a lot of time. And then I'd put it all into like a a PowerPoint somewhere. And then, I'd, and then I'd share it with the executive team. Maybe they read it, maybe they didn't. And then it was outdated like two weeks later. And once I saw what Clue did, again, not to plug Clue too much, but I was like, oh yeah, this should exist. This is an obvious application of technology. So anyway, I, I think we should all be technology optimists. 
I want to I want to ask you a question then on that because I think you mentioned earlier about like a good sales cycle. A good sell is really empowering that champion to go sell internally to your executive team. So as someone that's worn the hat as someone that's felt the pain specifically with running competitive Intel in your company, you felt those pains acutely. What, what did you do or what would you advise people that are listening right now that are in this CI profession that are feeling those acute pains? How do they communicate that up to executives to care, to buy in on these efficiencies that they can see will work if they build a more sustainable um, compete program? Um, I think I, I would actually advise people to number one, I think it's really important if you if you're in this role, if you're if competitive intelligence is part of your mandate as an individual, con, as a contributor at the company, you need to get all that insight, all that intelligence up to the C-suite like it needs to be in the C-suite. It would be a, such a sad failure if all that work, all that great information is not making it up to the highest ranks of the company. So how do you do that? Well, you can't just write them an email and say, here's what we learned about the competitors. It has to be a lot of work has to has to go into it. And um, the content needs to be very fresh and very high signal. And um, so how do you get high signal, fresh content? Well, ideally, you'd have some kind of platform to help you. But putting that aside for a second, um, the point is to create high quality content that is actionable. For instance, well, let me qualify that. It's both actionable and accessible. I think what I've seen a lot of people do wrong is they make these decks that are way too complicated with way too many words. And then the C- and they, they think, oh, I'm just showing how much work I did to the C-suite. It's like, actually, unfortunately, what you just did is create something that nobody's going to read because it's too complicated. So you need to do the hard work to create really high quality content that is accessible, meaning it's like easy to consume and easy to clean insights from. So think like market map visuals or like strengths and weaknesses comparisons that you can see quickly at a glance without too many like little like uh, annotations or footnotes or things like that, that that jumble the thing up. But if you create that high quality content, what if I were in those shoes, what I would then do, especially if there's a few rungs between me and the, and the board is I would just first share it with my boss. And I'd be like, hey, I put this together as like a market map. I think this would be useful for us to orient our product roadmap around or our, our pricing strategy or something like that. Now, now they, your boss has this thing that is valuable that they're going to want to share with their boss. If it's really good, they will. And so then they're relaying it up and they're relaying it up. And, um, you know, eventually it should make its way to the very top. And in doing that, number one, you've helped your company a lot. And number two, you've kind of given your seat, yourself a seat at the table. Like competitive intelligence is something that should always be top of mind for all executives team and all boards. And there needs to be kind of a, there needs to be energy behind that pursuit. And if you're in that role, like you're doing something important and it should be, you should work to maximize the exposure that your content is, is getting. I love that. I love that because on on so many fronts like that you you mentioned as well because you've been on both sides of the coin which is so interesting it, as someone that's sat in on those board meetings and you notice the glaring omission of there's th- 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 this ceo this this company does not understand the, the landscape that they're operating in or they didn't do the research and they're just giving me a bs answer right now whereas there is the opportunity for people taking on compete 
to get it in front because there is an appetite at the board level and it's a necessity to understand how your business is operating and how you're going to move forward. So I love that you can, you've got so many perspective here, perspectives here, Brian, from the, the investor lens to all the way down to someone that ran compete at his previous companies. I, I love that. Uh, I got a rap, a couple rapid fire questions. Are you ready to take a few? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Close this one out. What is one economic indicator that makes you optimistic about the future? Well, we got a, we got, we got a handle on inflation, it seems recently. So hopefully that keeps up. I think it all starts, it starts and ends with inflation, frankly. So that'd be my answer. If you give one piece of advice to companies in your portfolio today, what would it be? Focus on burn multiple or ARR per employee, which is our efficiency metrics. What is one book you would recommend to our listeners right now? Founding Sales by Pete Kazinji. Dang. That is the fastest rapid fire session we've had. Usually they, they end up being long discussions again. So I like that. Brian, this was awesome. Um, I'm so excited that you took the time here. And thank you everyone for listening. And we'll catch you all next week. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Adam. This was fun. Fun conversation. Appreciate it.